Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Each week, we introduce a new book in history that we find interesting and interview the author. Today's interview is with Thomas Pacino, author of the book, A Nation Forged in War, How World War II Taught Americans to Get Along. Before 1945, the United States was a collection of disparate ethnic and racial communities, living alongside each other in neighborhoods, villages, and towns but rarely together as a single American identity. The act of military service in the Second World War changed this, Tom Braschino argues, as individual men from thousands of small homogenous communities were compelled to work together, sleep together, train together, and if need be, fight together against a common foe. Along the way, these many representatives of their own unique ethnic enclaves forged together a new sense of American identity a mutually accepted unilateral form of whiteness, transcending existing racial hierarchies that were a legacy of the 19th century. While this new consensus went on after the war to introduce a climate of tolerance that created post-war prosperity and stability, sadly it also remained tied to the color line. As African Americans and other non-whites learned, as they sought equal access to the fruits of American democracy. Tom's book is a valuable and insightful study of how tightly intertwined war, society, and identity are in the American experience, and it makes for a great read, too. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. Looking forward to talking with you. Today we're talking with Tom Braschino about his new book, A Nation Forged in War. How World War II Taught Americans to Get Along. I've read his book, and I recommend it highly. Tom's book is a valuable study in how military service solidified the context of American citizenship for a widely disparate population of individuals from different ethnic identities and communities. The act of serving together in the military during the Second World War helped break down existing prejudices against immigrant communities and forged a new sense of American identity. Sadly, though, the new consensus remained tied to the color line, as African Americans and other non-white minorities learned as they pursued their own claims to equality. Tom, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what drove you to pursue this project? Uh, well, I'm a... Uh... My name is Tom Bersino. I'm a, a historian now and a professor at the U.S. Army School of Advanced Military Studies. Uh, this project emerged out of uh, graduate school, out of my uh, dissertation project. Uh, and the idea came from uh, I had been you know, studying as a military historian and, and thinking in terms of uh, what has in the past been called a new military history, but is probably better better known as a war in society these days uh, issues and sort of more social history than military. These were wider effects of military service. I had focused initially on the experiences of sort of common troops in World War II. I'd uh, written about company commanders 
And as I was heading into the, the this project, the idea was I was trying to think about ways that, that World War II had affected the country. It's, often, it's more sort of said than, than shown that World War II was, uh, you know, had a great influence on the way that the United States uh, developed after the war. Uh, we say it a lot, but then you go and open a, a, you open pretty much any textbook in American history. Uh, you, you read a lot of uh, you know, you know, more focused studies on American history, and they tend to use 1945 as a dividing line rather than a point in the middle of some sort of continuation. And, and, and so and we even you know, break down classes that way. And it's a good natural starting and stopping point, but it's not just a starting and stopping point. It's also a bridge, 1945. So uh, I was trying to think of ways that the World War II helped sort of shape uh, post-war society, and that is a rather large topic uh, in, in many ways. And, and I was talking to a friend about it, actually, uh, a buddy of mine named uh, Robert Davis, who was also in graduate school. And, and he was ta- he had been transcribing the letters from his uh from his grandfather to his grandmother that his, that his grandfather had written during the war. His grandfather, I believe, was in Wyoming at the time, uh, but was in the Army. I think it was in the Army Air Corps at the time, and, and was writing to his wife and said, you know, in, from Kansas, and he's a white Presbyterian, you know, sort of Scots-Irish uh, background, uh, writing to his, uh, his wife, hey, I met my first Jew. He's a pretty good guy. Kind of thing, and 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 you know, as soon as he said it, it struck me. I read so many accounts and and uh, surveys and questionnaires and interviews with World War II veterans. But this is actually sort of a, a very common theme. The guys talk about this quite a bit mm-hmm. about you know meeting people from different backgrounds, uh, very different than than what they'd ever encountered in their life before, because they had been relatively isolated uh, before the war in either ethnic enclaves or just sort of rural environments or or wherever. Mm-hmm. And but that a lot of them talk about the fact you know, that they had met a lot of different people from different backgrounds and learned that they were you know pretty good folks and you know, they didn't have much problem with them and you know so I had my my idea and I had originally gone into it thinking that I would make the case that World War II service military service in World War II was part of a larger process of a larger um, trend that was going on in the country at right. the time that there were other issues that had led to that sort of that had very much sort of set the conditions for this to happen. Uh, you know, there were generation issues. Immigration had been had been largely shut down in the 1920s, which meant that you had you know you had less first generation people, which helped set the conditions. More people speaking English. But these are the classic definitions of why this process happened. Mm-hmm. You, you sort of see those happening. Some some of the ideological issues and, and your prosperity in the post-war era, you know, helping contribute to greater tolerance among all of these different ethnic and religious groups. And again, we hate to say here that we're talking about really white ethnic or what we now call white ethnic and religious groups. Mm-hmm. Right. But as I did the work, you know, I, 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 could, I sort of took where the evidence led me in this case, and I was very much surprised to find out that military service, I made a much stronger argument than I, had, that I said than what I set out to do. Right. That, that the conditions in the country were much worse right up until the end of World War II. So, you know, to the extent that, yes, there were less first-generation immigrants around, yes, more people spoke English. So you had that very, yes, there were, you know, the economic situation had improved. It had not improved relations among all of the groups up until 1945-46. Well, you can certainly see there would be contention or tensions between different groups for, for defense jobs. 
certainly as, as part of migration patterns right I mean, the yeah, war. yeah i mean we are sort of i think we had we know that there was more tolerance after the war than there was before it. and so we try to figure out okay well what would make sense that that the war had helped build better tolerance or that there were other things going on and but when i dug into it it just really seemed like the the key aspect the key you know, causal um, mechanism in in the change was World War II military service and the return home of veterans from the war. Right, a very dramatically different perspective than what they had when they left. And so, so I, I ended up making a bit of a stronger argument than I had in, in, intended to make. And I and I'm, I, I think it I think it holds up pretty well. Uh, well, it does. It's actually complemented too, and complements some other works in the field too. I mean, I'm thinking of. Deborah Dash Moore's book, G.I. Jews, about how World War II shaped uh, Jewish identity. And, and uh, one of her conclusions is that here's this immigrant group that is a single corporate identity and is often isolated within the larger context of American society. And for them, military service is their entree into Americanness in some ways. So I mean, you know, your work certainly you know fits right in with that, and you know both validates and is validated by this other work. Right. Well, I, I think that I mean the Jewish case, and and I I will say this too that uh, in many ways I had to sort of I was trying to stick with a pretty broad brush, mm-hmm. uh, so I try to cover as many groups as I could, given the sort of evidence that was available. Uh, one of the sort of a kind of modern conceit or contemporary conceit of of now is that we tend to sort of think about which groups matter to us now mm-hmm. and then project them back into the past and then forget about the, what, which groups matter to them then. You know, right. Scandinavians were a very important separate group in that era, especially if you were up in sort of the upper Midwest. You know, they were very much, you know, on par in that era, in that, in that area of the country as an independent group, as something like Jews or Italians, which we're more familiar sure. with as being independent groups. So I was trying to, so yeah, the Jewish, yeah, and so I had to, you know, very, very much try to. Uh, we have written, we tend to write a lot more about the groups that there's more material on Irish, sure, and Jewish. So I, yes, Deborah Dash Moore's book is 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 uh, very good, sort of a single example case study, and you could do it for every group, uh, very very easily. And I, I, mean, I right. highly recommend her book. It's a, it's a wonderful book uh, that, that I think makes a great case. Now, in, in her case, she. Uh, sort of tended to focus. She focused on both the sort of the, the how the war sort of drove yes increased uh, Americanness and also and Jewish and also Jewishness sense. and I right. and I agree. Although I think that it, it did more of the Amer it just did Americanness more. <laughs> that's my that's sort of the overall argument. And, you know, and and so much so to the degree that you know after the war that you had this you know a serious concern among the Jewish American community that there was you know that there was going to see that they were going to cease to be a Jewish American community that they would be right. you know completely subsumed I mean they had real concerns about how much intermarriage was going on uh, after the war and so this was diluting you know the uniqueness of Jewish culture and and uh, and what an interesting counterpoint to the fears that existed prior to the war amongst white Anglo-Saxon Protestant communities about intermarriage. You know, right. it's kind of like a mirror image there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's and you know one of the things I I did sort of try to do briefly in the book was talk about that many of the similar trends uh, of the 1950s, 40s, 50s 
late 1940s, 50s, and into the 60s, uh, increased prosperity, you know, uh, greater sort of or less ideological tolerance, mm-hmm. were also existent in the 1920s. But in that era, you had a greater you had greater intolerance. And so I wanted to in the 1920s as opposed to the 1950s and 60s, we had greater tolerance, mm-hmm. which I, I thought was a, a interesting contrast and sort of showed why it is that World War II was so important to this and not some of those other trends. And you can see it with some of the, the different groups, especially groups like Italians and, and Jews who were you know, Catholics, especially, or were highly discriminated against in the 1920s. Right. Yeah, right. They made a good case of that. And obviously in the 1930s, with, with you know, there's this great concern that uh, about you know, having quotas to, to keep Jews out of certain communities, keep them out of um, some of the high-profile universities. Saying that they were starting to dominate, so we need to limit their numbers at these places, and all of those those things that started to go on that had been going on right up until uh, really the end of World War II. I mean, I, you know, Leonard Dinnerstein wrote a you know, great book on anti-Semitism. Right. He called, he called 1945 the high point of anti-Semitism in America, which I think would surprise most people. Yeah, you know, we don't think of it that way, of course, because of the constructed narrative of the Great Crusade against Nazism. Right, and and, and this is my. Yeah, that was sort of a shock to me that, you know, I, you know even I, you know, one of the things that I think it'll surprise most people is we tend to think of the Red Scare and the, the McCarthyism as being this sort of highly intolerant. And yes, it was. It was ideologically intolerant, mm-hmm. extremely ideologically intolerant. <laughs> However, it was not it was not related to uh, ethnicity or religion. Well, unless your name was Rosenberg, perhaps, but that that could be a discussion for another well, time. That, that is actually, but that, no, I would I would actually yeah. make the case that that, that is that's actually the proves the rule. Uh-huh. That even with the Rosenbergs, even with a higher proportion of Jewish Americans among, you know, active communists in the United States, they still don't make McCarthyism. Still doesn't take on an ideological, or I mean, an ethnic. Quality. Right. And right. It, it actually that actually is sort of what proved like listen we don't care that they're Jewish we care that they're communist and, and even I mean it's amazing even the most uh, violent critics of, of McCarthy and and their ranks are are very large and distinguished and mostly correct uh, <laughs> have they rarely yeah, I, I think there's only a handful whoever you even accuse McCarthy of also being anti-Semitic or. Right. Well, not not McCarthy directly, perhaps, but certainly he does tie into this pre-existing nativist impulse, which is is partly ethnically motivated, too. But I I tend to agree with you. You know, he he and Huac do not seem to be ethnically motivated. Right. And in fact, one of the I mean, I I would even go even stronger on this, that they they begin to equate very strongly bigotry, ethnic and religious bigotry, with uh, anti-Americanism. Mm-hmm. That by doing this stuff, you're dividing you're dividing the country and making us more susceptible to communism. So you know, HUAC and goes after groups that are like the Klan, right? Uh, Klan type groups for their bigotry, uh, and, and then that's a that's a pretty important change. Uh, so, so yeah, there there are a lot of ways that the that this sort of manifests itself, that these changes begin to manifest themselves after war. Right. Okay. Well, let's turn back more to the, the context of the book, too. Um, you know, the question I have is, how did Americans contextualize military service before the Second World War? I mean, you, you played a lot, place a lot of weight on, obviously, on the importance of service after the Second World War. But 
that kind of makes it stand out as something different uh, as compares with what went before. What role is accorded veterans in American society? Uh, you're talking before the war or after? Before, before the war. Well, this is this is an important uh, important issue. I mean, and this relates to some of the other literature that's come out recently. Jennifer Keene and and um, Stephen Ortiz have talked about the importance of, of veterans. Again, I believe I'm getting his name right. I've talked about the importance of sort of the change in our perspective of veterans and military service. You know, for a long time, obviously, military service in American history was uh, not looked up upon as as a career or profession that you would want to go into. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, sort of ironically, I suppose, for a long time, immigrants made up a disproportionate size of the of the enlisted corps of the United States Army, for example, uh, because no one else really wanted to do it. So they had a sort of bad reputation. Now, they would, you know, we have this, you know, the, the kind of myth of the rifleman, the, the, the minute man who comes out and, and fights or willing to do this stuff <laughs> in wars. And it it does happen that everybody is willing to do their part during a war, but they also want to get out of uniform as quickly as possible. And one of the things that sort of happens for that is that with that is that there has been a tendency in American, there was a tendency in American history to not treat veterans particularly well. Right. And this is sort of came up after World War One, and, and veterans began to, through the, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, American Legion, and groups like this began to sort of, you know, fight for Greater recognition it began really with the Civil War, but you know continues the Spanish-American War and World War One, and this kind of comes to a head in part with the you know the, the Bonus March after after uh, World War One, you know the start of the Depression, and in the sort of high point of the Depression there in the Hoover era, where they had gone out there and tried to get this bonus that they had been agreed to get paid earlier than what they, they had expected, and this did not go well for Herbert Hoover. Sort of famously, <laughs> the army went in and drove the the the, uh, the, the bonus marchers out of Washington, D.C. I was going to say, it didn't go well for the bonus marchers either. It did not know? go well for it. Really, really, nobody came out of this looking looking particularly great, uh, something that Franklin Roosevelt was very much aware of when he came into office of not having to deal with this problem, too. Now, he didn't pay the bonus early either, <laughs> <laughs> keep in mind, but uh, but he also made sure that there were no high-profile examples of veterans of the First World War being driven by bayonet point out of, you know, out of, out of the nation's <laughs> capital. So, you know, he, he was very much aware of, of, uh, of those issues. And as part of that, and as part of the lobbying of those veterans groups, and when World War II came along, there was this much greater attempt to sort of recognize their service. And, and instead of sort of, okay, you've done your part, now go back to your life, sort of say, we would like to reward you for what you've done. Right. On your part. And that, that comes out in multiple ways, in, in, you know, most famously the GI Bill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the upshot of that, that for our purposes, for the purposes of my my argument, is that what happens is it puts veterans, that helps the process of putting veterans into more prominent positions within society from which they could then uh, spread the tolerance that they had learned in the military to the rest of society. Right, and much more rapidly, perhaps, too, than their peers from other conflicts or who may have had to wait a generation right. to enter public life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is this uh, immediate change uh, that, that happens because because they're able to. I mean, it, it's very it, it's very very rapid by you know, clearly by the you know by the early 1950s, veterans are making more money. 
uh, than non-veterans of in the, within the same age group. They've entered into politics and are more and more taking on uh, political offices, you know, state and you know, local, state and national level. They've moved mm-hmm. into positions of management. Uh, they've become educators more and more. So you see all of these kind of areas of society, community leaders, all of these areas of society where they're they're kind of they're in charge, and they really mm-hmm. do bring with them this sort of. It's almost it's just it's almost more notable for its absence than its presence. The idea that you know, they just don't care that that they're, that next door is is potentially a Jewish guy or an Italian guy or a Scandinavian of some sort, right. or where it just doesn't bother them because they had dealt with that in World War II and it wasn't a concern. Now they would still be concerned if uh, an African American moved in next door, mm-hmm. uh, but that's sort of that's also I think a legacy of African Americans being segregated in World War II. Uh, right. Oh, very much so. Yeah, I, I would agree too. Um, you know, what I, what I enjoy particularly about your book, Tom, is you, know, you, you make the strong case for tolerance, not only within reference to your thesis, but really overall as a explanative schema that kind of could stand alongside race and gender and ideology, um, and how they're used to. Um, to you know, create a better understanding of the past. How did you come across? If I, I know this makes that elemental, but how did you come across the idea of using tolerance? I mean, you know, elaborating it, better defining it just that way. Yeah, that, that is a that's a very uh, important uh, question about the, this era because the ma- the majority of the time when Historians or, or you know, students of these sort of intergroup relations, not just historians, sociologists, political scientists, mm-hmm. what have you, have looked at it. They've looked at other other factors. Um, very often, it's been race, and then sort of the the you know almost that subcategory of race, whiteness. Mm-hmm. And so you get into these questions of degrees of whiteness. Uh, problem, you know, this problem that that relates to this era, and you know, where did the Italians arrive in America as? White is considered white, or are they some sort of not white, as in you know, towards the spectrum, uh, towards black, and therefore not able to have the rights? And that was, you know, it's an interesting and important debate, although it doesn't seem to be most directly relevant to the World War II era itself, uh, when it comes to these these sorts of ethnic uh, and religious groups. You know, the same thing sort of goes with assimilation as another sort of factor that you would use in these cases. So. Um, yeah. Again, you, you get into these questions of degrees of assimilation, meaning, and, and then it opens up the door to the question of assimilated according to whom, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is it according to the immigrants themselves, or is it according to their neighbors? Is it according to larger society, you know, government, uh, the, the types of government services they can receive? You know, so legal assimilation. Uh, or acculturation where it gets even more difficult, you know, is, is language an indication that they've done this? And what I kept coming to uh, in, in these cases, you know, and acculturation sort of captures a lot of the ideology issue. You know, do they believe mm-hmm. they're Americans? Are they, you know, the, the type of uh, American, you know, that Americanism, which is a common term used especially in the World War I era, yeah. um, you know, that, that had become, to an issue, become an issue. What I kept coming back to was, uh, to whatever degree all those things are true, to whatever degree uh, Italians had become white in their own eyes or anybody else's eyes, 
to whatever degree you know, German Americans had you know had become acculturated or assimilated in, into American culture, it did not lead to all of those groups getting along with one another. One another. So a better sort of metric for measuring what was going on when you talked about those groups in a larger perspective was tolerance. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and again, it's sort of a hard. It's not the easiest thing to, to measure, but you can you can get a, a pretty good feel for whether or not these people are getting along with each other, um, or or more maybe more appropriately, whether or not they're not getting along with each other. Right. And you can really see that they're not getting along with each other pretty dramatically up you know, up to and through the war. And then at the end of the war, you start to see that there you you see a, a sharp decline in cases of of open ethnic and religious intolerance. Now, that's not to say that this stuff disappears entirely, because right. of course it's there. But it, I would even argue that it's a pretty important step to say that 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 they're not uh, that people don't want to be vocal about their whatever it is that they might think about uh, Armenians. <laughs> yeah, if you're in California, yeah, if you're in right. you know, the, the Central Valley in California, you want to talk about Armenians or something like that. You know, if they're not saying it, you know, whereas prior to, you know, that this was the, this is what, you know, politicians had campaigned on, uh, you know, prior, at, at, you know, prior to World War II. Well, uh, the Chinese Exclusion Acts as well. I mean, other uh, cases, you know, those are also non-white, a non-white group. Right, and then those are those are also difficult. Uh, you know, I. I uh, for a, a couple of reasons, I sort of set aside the Asian examples. Uh, well, well, obviously for the Second World War, it's you know there's there major issues. Right. There's you know, yeah. now I would it, it's difficult because they, they sort of merit their own case. When it comes to certain you know, certain groups, the numbers are very small, and it's hard to get a a good feel on. And now there's some great books on Japanese. Yeah. Both, you know, obviously the, the internment and the discrimination against Japanese and then also Japanese military service and about how they tended to follow a trend, not all, not unlike what I talk about in this book, that they, mm-hmm. you know, you get that sort of the, the, the just Americans argument or that they sort of prove themselves as, as Americans and, you know, do a pretty, pretty good job of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, as far as overall tolerance goes after the war to the degree where they're located, I, I think you see, you see it increase, but, it's not that is not what I chose to focus on, uh, because of both numbers and because of the uniqueness of those cases. Sure, sure. So that was, yeah, so I, but I, I think you see some similar trends. I mean, I think most people don't realize this that besides Japanese, uh, most Asian Americans were actually integrated into the World War II military mm-hmm. uh, in the World War II, which is, yeah, I think, a pretty interesting case and, and has been studied somewhat uh, in some some books, but probably could get some more attention. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and another feature too is how that I that I really enjoy is how you treat anti-Catholicism or you know religious bias, um, anti-Catholic bias, alongside ethnicity as this issue of tolerance to be addressed. And of course, so you bracket the study between the two Catholic elections, you know, 1928 with Al Smith. And then, of course, 1960 and John Kennedy. Um, can you say something about the significance, not only of these elections, but also the context of tolerance and anti-Catholicism? Sure. The, uh, you know, one of the reasons it, it was in many ways it's very easy to, to lump uh, anti-Catholic bias in with anti 
ethnic, or what we now call ethnic. Uh, it was sort of it's sort of an anachronism for this time. We didn't really start to use the term ethnic until really after the war, and in greater frequencies, more sort of race or nationality, the way it was described prior to then. But um, it's very easy to lump them together in this era because that's what they did. Yeah, mm -hmm. there was, it was you know they tended to be of a piece that that you know, anti-Catholic was part of the sort of the bias against new immigrants because they were heavily anti-Catholic. That was part of their fundamental flaw. <laughs> You know, according to the, the folks who were intolerant towards them. And I, and I want to be clear, too. I was trying to, you know, one of the things I really try to do in this is, is show that it, it works both ways. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we've really learned, uh, you know, in, in the years of study of, of immigrant groups in the United States is that, uh, you know, they're not just sort of helpless victims in this case. They come over and many of them don't show much of an interest uh, in and getting along with the people who are here already. I mean, they'll come for they come for various you know for a variety of reasons. Many of them come over to you know, just for economic reasons, and so they want to sort of take that, but not give up, not give up their sort of unique culture at home, which they didn't necessarily have much of a problem with and mm -hmm. in all cases. So you have you know a proliferation, and then that sort of feeds on itself. You have a cycle of well, we're not so sure we really want to be part of this culture, and this culture doesn't seem to really want us to be part of it. So good we'll just we'll we'll be in our ethnic enclaves and not show much of an interest in moving out and we'll mm -hmm. set up our own newspapers in our own language and not show much of an interest in in learning english and 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 being a part of you know getting along that with society it. so so you know it, it does work both ways i want to be sort of clear on this so there's not so not sort of setting this up as kind of victims of intolerance versus perpetrators of Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, everybody sort of got a role to play in this. You know, they, they, they separate themselves, and they are separated. You know, um, right. So, so that that's important important to say. But you know, but that said, of course, the anti-Catholic uh, bias is, is pretty important. And the elections, to me, I want to be very clear on this because I think you know this is I think that's easily confused uh, by people. Uh, that can easily be confused by people, and and mm -hmm. you know I sort of thought this way at first, and then I realized that it was a mistake to say this. Look, Al Smith did not lose the 1928 election because he was Catholic. No, of course not. Of yeah, course he, not. He, yeah. he, and, and John Kennedy did not win in 1960 because he was Catholic, although Richard Nixon thought so. Yeah, um, <laughs> but, uh, but the tone of the campaign is what I was really focusing on. Uh, in, in 1928, it was very easy and, and very common to when you were a, a supporter of Hoover, or, or maybe better yet, a opponent of Al Smith, to make your case based on the sort of ethnic and Irish aspect and the religious issue, you could say, you know, we do, you know, we cannot vote, do not vote for him. He's a Catholic, yeah, and Catholics are wrong for these reasons. They are servants of the Pope. They will not become good men. You know, all the sort of reasons that you could lay out about the about Catholics in 1960 when Kennedy runs. And, you know, Nixon is doing everything in his power to make sure that nobody brings up the religious issue. Right. Because, you know, the bigger slur in 1960 was not that you were Catholic. The bigger slur was that you were a bigot. And you did not want to be associated with bigots as opposed to not, you know, you, you didn't care so much if you were associated with Catholics. Yeah, sure, I voted for the Catholic, no big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our, whereas if you had gone and said, well, I didn't vote for him because he's Catholic, people would have been like, well, I don't want to have anything to do with you, bigot. And that's a bigger slur. And, and Richard Nixon was horrified of this. 
uh, you know, had proposed a moratorium on the issue, on the religious issue, had, you know, insisted that his campaign, that he'll be even bring up the issue. And, and it's often, you know, actually the Kennedy, you know, sort of, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but the, the, the story is that, that the Kennedys themselves were the ones distributing anti-Catholic literature mm-hmm. in order to inflame the Catholic vote, uh, to, to get them to go out and vote for Kennedy. Uh, when it really wasn't going on as much. Now, there was some concern among the Kennedy, especially early on among the Kennedy campaign, that they would have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it, it just, you know, it, it, it became apparent that it wasn't going to be as much of an issue as it was. And, and the tone of the, of the two campaigns is dr- dramatically different uh, because of this. And, and, and that was what I was trying, trying to focus on. And that's a, you know, a remarkably short amount of time. Oh, yeah. To happen. You know, this is 32 years. It's nothing. Blink of an eye, and all of a sudden you have these you know, completely different uh, types of campaigns. And the other thing about campaigns, and I, I try to do also, uh, one of the things I really try to point out in the post-war period as an indication of tolerance, one of the things that, you know, unfortunately fields in history tend to tend to be, I think, a little too exclusive. So you say, I'm a socialist historian, you know, I'm not going to get into the, to the politics of the era as much. Right, or I'm a military historian. I'm not going to talk right. about these issues, right? Yeah, and one of the things, you know, they're really when you think about what it is the social historian has to do, which especially when you're a historian and you might not want to be into the quantitative stuff as much as a political scientist might or some sort of social scientist might want to get into, is that you do a sort of proliferation of anecdotal evidence, which <laughs> you put together to sort of you make a compelling case that you know the anecdotes carry such a weight. It's the aggregate of the anecdote, more or less. <laughs> so we do a, we do a lot of that, but you know, a, a great yeah. And then you sort of counter with polls, and we all know how how flawed polls can be. Well, really, the best sort of poll or referendum on issues on a larger scale can often be a state election or a or a national election, even better, where you're crossing all of the boundaries. You know, mm-hmm. That that. You know, you, obviously you could you could elect a congressman in a you can elect a Catholic congressman in a heavily Catholic district. You're gonna have a lot more trouble electing a Catholic senator in a state that is much more diverse. Uh, and so the the point one of the things that I really try to point out is that in these sort of these you know the best really the best evidence that a social historian one of the or a good case of evidence that a social historian can have is a is a statewide referendum. Mm-hmm. An issue, and obviously it's sort of flawed in its own thing too. But alongside all those anecdotes that we talk about in the polls and all the other data we can use, we start to see a very clear trend that, you know, after World War II, the number of Catholics and sort of ethnic uh, minorities, Slovenians, Italians, Jews, who were elected to statewide offices, you know, skyrockets. Right after the war, and so it, you know, so alongside the anecdotes of people saying, you know, we're just not seeing, we're just not seeing as much of the discrimination, uh, the open discrimination, the open intolerance. Now we're also seeing that, you know, when people are actually having to, you know, check a box, either, either they, either they're voting for this guy because they, you know, because it's possible they're voting for him because they want to vote for a Catholic or because they are Catholic themselves, or which seems sort of more likely that's not the issue mm-hmm. they care about anymore. Well, it becomes identity versus uh, policy, in, in essence, you know, what, what people are voting on. So, um, you know, I'm sorry, sorry to cut you off there on that, too. Um, you know, it seems to me, too, as, as, you know, reviewing the book, that 
The Second World War is not the only experience in America with the wartime assimilation. I mean, I can think of similar contexts in terms of the Civil War to an extent involving Irish Americans and, and uh, German Americans, and then later in the First World War. You know, what is it that distinguishes the Second World War so much more than these earlier conflicts? Yeah. Okay. Well, the, the, I mean, it, it is a it is a great question because it, you know the, the same principle should be able to apply in, in both cases and to a certain degree. And there's more and more work coming out on this. It, uh, this does happen in the Civil War, particularly for Irish. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that you know the Irish do better in the United States as a group after the Civil War than they do prior. That there is sort of more more tolerance towards them. I wouldn't say a lot, but more towards them. Uh, interestingly. Uh, on the on the sort of flip side, the Germans do not do well mm-hmm. after the Civil War. It seems like that that's the the consensus, and the and the reason why, uh, and part of the issue with the Civil War and and for both Irish and Germans is that while many Irish and Germans are, you know, for lack of a better term, integrated among sort of multi-ethnic units, they're also in serving their own heavily Irish brigades regiments. Even when it comes to Germans, you know, an entire core right. of, of Germans, and you know the, the argument of Christian Keller, uh, who has a book called it, I, think I, believe, I believe it's called Chancellor's Bill on the Germans, mm-hmm. uh, and he points out, and I think he, he makes a very strong case for this, is that because they're identified as a individual core, and because that particular core had the bad luck of being the guys who got overrun at Chancellorsville because they just happened to be at the end of the line. That became their reputation for the rest of the war. And they could not yeah. uh, live it down, even though they actually fought perfectly fine. And, and to the degree <laughs> to the degree that they, that they got beat at Chancellorsville, it, it had everything to do with the fact that they were surprised and in camp. Right. It had nothing to do with the fact that they were that they were German. You know, but that is not the view that comes out of it. The view that comes out of it is the Flying Dutchman, right? right. The, the running German. Uh, who would retreat from these battles? And so, as a you know, Keller's argument is that the Germans after the war hunkered down and become a more isolated group. Now, when it comes to World War One, uh, and you know, I, I would recommend you know Nancy Ford's book on American Ball, which is pretty yes. good on, on this case, and Christopher Sturba has a pretty good book on 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 these issues too. Uh, and there's some others. Uh, Richard Slotkin, uh, Lost Battalions, gets into some of some of these concerns too. Uh, World War One's a little bit different case. I, the, the case I make is that uh, is that in World War One, you, you know, where one fifth of the of the U.S. Army is actually immigrants, first mm-hmm. generation, you know, not you know, that doesn't even get into sort of how many were second and third generation of these ethnic groups, uh, a, a highly diverse force, uh, and and they do have followed a similar path as World War Two, the guys who actually serve. However, their group is much smaller. Proportions mm-hmm. of the population, and this, the the the, you know, the American uh, part in World War One is so much shorter that the lessons don't really seem to you know sink in the same right. way. Also, you know, like we said, we talked about earlier, the fact that the veterans don't don't have all the same benefits, and so don't necessarily come back into the same positions of prominence in society means that they're not able to sort of spread their lessons as as quickly and decisively throughout the society. Right. So, um, but I think most people would be sort of surprised by, you know, the American Legion has kind of a reputation of being 
or historical reputation of being somewhat intolerant on, on issues, and they certainly were ideologically intolerant. But I think most people would be surprised to see that the American Legion after World War One is very much saying to people, you know, that that if you are an immigrant, you served in the army, you're good to go. Right. That you are you 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 know you are good. You've proven yourself as an American. No concerns. And they're actually sort of surprised by uh, by their inability to sort of change people's minds on this particular issue. And they're less than and they're less than you know great about about saying that the. That there's other ways you could prove you're an American, you know, that, that of, of generalizing the lesson that you, know, you had. Yes, you were good if you were if you had served, mm-hmm. but if you hadn't served, well, we're not so sure. You know, so you know, the, the numbers get uh, more limited that way. You know, World War II just had this sort of longer trend, a longer sort of time frame that goes on where you know it's not just your buddy who happens to be Irish or Italian or Jewish. It's also because you serve with them for so long. You kind of, mm-hmm. by proxy, learn learn about their families, and realize there's no mistake that this guy. It's not just because he's in the army and doing his part that he's a that he's a, a good guy. It's because he comes from good people, mm-hmm. and we know this because his people are sending food to us. Right. They're sending this or care about him. We know, you know, we know that all the concerns he has about you know girlfriends at home or or but if they're the same as mine. Right. Yeah. So you, and you get that it really sort of, it really sinks in. This case, and, and and it is something that they know. It's, it's something that they, you know, it's one of those things that food is such a great one in this case. You know, how much these guys talk about different foods because you know, food is such a good symbol of of, of home and you know of, of the end of the war, right? right? Yeah. And cultural differences too, and the the fact that yeah, and you know, one thing you sort of say about America, we love to incorporate different types of foods. <laughs> Yeah, and we do. And you can really see the way that these guys talk about, you know, you know, learning about different types of foods. I remember we had a a visitor to my graduate school one time, and she was talking about how she had a uh, it, she was from the Midwest, from from all I think she's from Ohio, Pennsylvania, maybe Indiana, somewhere somewhere in that you know that range of the country, Western Pennsylvania. And she said, you know, prior to World War II, in her family, a salad was something that came out of the Jello mold. <laughs> and yeah, you know, and but then her you know her cousin had gone to to fight in the war, had got part part of the war in Italy, and comes back and they realize that a salad can be, you know, something with vegetables in it. You know, this is, you know, a, a, a lettuce salad. You know, this is, and just you know, it's just a little example of the way that all the ways that 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 it can sort of filter into society. You know, that, that these changes could filter through. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the military service had effects that were wide-ranging beyond just beyond just that sort of individual experience. Right, right. That, that's great. That's great. You know, what specific aspects of training do you think provided the foundation for assimilation? I mean, I, I, I see, as you describe it, the process, of course, occurring spontaneously through you know personal contact, but there has to be also an impetus on the part of formal or even informal training. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, this is one of the. I, I want to be, you know, very, very clear about this. That there is a a, a chapter in the book that gets into mm-hmm. the army, and I, I had to do it, and it it it, sort of, it almost breaks the continuity of the of the book. You know, sort of telling the right. story that it's chronological, and then I kind of stop and say, okay, here now I have to explain to you 
explain why it is that that the army becomes this. And I focus on the army, although this right. works pretty well for the whole military. But why it is that the army becomes the device for this? Because they didn't have to choose to fight to organize themselves this way and train guys the way they did. I mean, you, you could follow other models. There's other there mm-hmm. there are other models of how you do a military. You could you could have ethnic you could you could have ethnic regiments. Uh, That's what the you know, British had been doing for centuries, really. Right. Uh, you could do these sort of the regimental system that is, you know, that is that is drawn from specific localities, so that you know, the, with the presumption that since these guys know each other, they will, you know, have greater, you know, cohesion and and mm-hmm. and will fight uh, better because of it. And you know, the, the United States Army sort of consciously breaks from that and decides to go a different route. And and the point that I, I'm making this is that. Part of that is a pragmatic reason that it, it's it's uh, there. You know, there is a certain amount of efficiency mm-hmm. uh, with going along with just saying, okay, let's just throw all these guys in the mixer and then create units out of that out of the mix, you know, as evenly as possible. But part of it is also you know, idealistic. It's sort of legacy of the progressive era, and I and I go back and talk about. Yeah, folks. I mean, this had been a long time thing with the the American military. George Washington had said had talked about sort of the, the leveling that had happened in the Continental Army by drawing guys from across the, you know, the sectional divides right. in the country, the the state divides. But you know, what really picks up pace when you get into the Progressive Era, and you have people like Theodore Roosevelt and uh, Leonard Wood. Yes, you know, Theodore Roosevelt most people heard Leonard Wood, maybe a little bit less so. Mm-hmm. But as a chief of staff of the army, and talks about preparedness, and really talks about, and he he specifically says, as we prepare for World War One, and throw these guys together, we have all these diverse people. The best way to get these people to start getting along and being good Americans is through the military. So he writes an article right. called, called "Heat Up the Melting Pot." Yeah, and, and specifically calling for this sort of thing of getting guys across views and. And selective service really sort of picks up that mantle. I mean, it just sort of becomes the, it becomes sort of just the way that they go about doing their business. So it's, it's interesting because, you know, George C. Marshall's chief of staff of the Army in World War II says, when it comes to the African-American issues, the Army is not really a place for social experimentation. Yet in the meantime, they're doing something that is sort of a, a large social experiment, mm-hmm. which is mixing together these people from all over the, 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 the country and from different backgrounds, different religions and all these things. Well, that choice, choosing to do that, means that you have to account for certain factors in the way that mm-hmm. you train these guys. And because they are going to be different, they are going to be from different backgrounds. Now, in World War One, they had to be very, very direct about solving that issue because there were a lot of language issues. There were a lot of people who just didn't speak English as a, you know, or hardly spoke English, so they had to, you know, to actually do direct language training. But there's other... Yeah, you know, there's other ways that this becomes apparent, uh, and and one of the ways I I deal with it is through chaplains. Right. Is, I, you, you're going to have a diverse religious background among these guys if you choose to mix them up like this. Well, how do chaplains then minister to all of these diverse people? And and believe me, this is one of the hardest things to try and research about this book. How they dealt with this with this question, uh, because. Uh, excuse me. One of the uh, one of the interesting thing that's, things that happens in World War II with the chaplains is I was trying, really trying to figure out what the religious breakdown was of the World War II military mm-hmm. because my assumption was that they would have assigned chaplains based on a 
percentage, you know, that they were stamping dog tags with Catholic and or, or Protestant or, or or Jewish or other. And it, as it came up, you know, those were the majority of the, the groups. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they folded all the Protestant ones under that P on the dog tag. So I assumed that as they came in, they got their religion, and they did. But they didn't record it, which is a fascinating thing. <sighs> they didn't actually record for statistical purposes how many they were getting from each group. And so so that's not how they, they figured out the chaplain breakdown. They did they figured out the chaplain breakdown, and this is interesting, uh, based on a religious census of the United States. <laughs> because they assumed that they were drawing, you know, they, they created selective service to draw fairly and equally from the population, and they so they assumed that the pop, that their, their military population would reflect the general population. Each, each group would be fairly represented right. based upon the proportion. Right. But the interesting thing is that it doesn't matter. Because if you, if you draw these, you, you can't, because you're only going to have one, I, I think it comes down to about one chaplain per battalion, which is over a thousand men. Right. So, so it doesn't actually matter if the chaplain is proportional because a rabbi is going to have to minister to those thousand guys, <laughs> regardless of whether they're all Jewish. And we're not organizing them. It's not a Jewish battalion. So, you know, so they're pretty good about And I mean, what's even more fascinating is you get a feel for how the Army replies to, you know, his, his planning on dealing with this issue. They train those chaplains. They insist that those chaplains be willing to minister to all of these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they have to. Well, you you included the start of the one chapter that that nice um, quote I think for the film Battleground, where the chaplain addresses the the assembled group and tells them, "Now I'm going to do a Jewish service after we do this Catholic service." Right. It, it's the line from the yeah. movie Battleground is my the uh, all us holy, holy Joes are switch hitters. Right. Right. In the, okay. in the movie Battleground, where he has that. I'm, I'm yes. Meaning we'll we'll do the different types of services, and so you have that going. Now, obviously, there are some the extremely difficult cases that you know if a if a soldier was dying, a Catholic soldier was dying, they did everything they could to try and find a Catholic chaplain mm-hmm. on last rites, but not always. Yeah, you know, if if it wasn't available, you know there were plenty of times that rabbis and and various Protestant chaplains did last rites. Because, you know, in many ways, you know, the last rites was, you know, obviously there's last rites as a religious activity and the importance of it as a sacrament in the Catholic Church. Right. But it also is a degree of comfort for a dying soldier. You know, and so they have this sort of very important that it gets done, even if the sort of official last rites would be redone later by a Catholic, you know, priest. Uh, so you know, so you sort of see that going on. You know, same thing with you know, services, important services, Passover, and what, if you were on, if you were shipboard, there was no rabbi available. You know, a Protestant or a, a Protestant minister or a Catholic priest doing the Passover services, so they could have that because it's an important time; it has to be done. Right. And, and and so you see a lot of this going on, and this is very deliberately done by the army. Uh, one of the things I, I really in, enjoyed: you know, the army came up with a the chaplains. As part of, you know, one of the reasons that they actually don't track, I, I, I don't have deliverance of proof of this, where they sort of, you see the memo where they make this decision. But one of the reasons I think that they don't track the uh, religious makeup of the, of the, of the army, you know, by, by a religious group as the guys come in is so they don't have to answer that question from outside groups. Mm-hmm. Because there were groups who wanted to, in, as part of the intolerance in America, 
at home on the home front, particularly in particular during the war. Part of that is religious based, and they say, "Oh well, Jews aren't doing their part," or you know, or Irish are overrepresented, or whatever the sort of case might be. And so they send mm-hmm. these notes to the chaplain to the army and ask, ask the adjutant general, "Hey, what's the uh, what is how many Jews are serving?" And they came up with a standard response: "We don't track those numbers." <laughs> Everybody's doing their part, and I think you know, <laughs> in order to it be works honest, pretty well. Yeah, and and in order to be honest. That was the case. So, like I said, they based the proportion, and they tried to match it as best they could, the chaplains to the uh, to the uh, to the religious census, mm-hmm. uh, but they didn't quite catch up. You know, I think I think Baptists were overrepresented, uh, Episcopalians, I believe, were over, overrepresented among the chaplains. But again, like I said, it almost it almost doesn't matter because you just you, you can't have you, because they, because we chose to integrate across religious lines. Uh, you can't have a, you just can't have enough priests or rabbis or Baptists or whatever around in order to minister to every troop in a unit. Sure. And so, that, sure. and so that's the, you know, that sort of comes out. So you see that with the army, which is sort of the long way around to getting to the training question you had <laughs> about these guys. The point I wanted to make was that this is very, they very deliberately uh, train the men to think this way. So it's, it's not just the fact that they become familiar with each other just by contact. It's mm-hmm. part of how the contact happens. And in training, one of the things that they, you know, the Army really, an Army does generally, uh, you know, is strip is try to strip guys of their individuality uh, at first and then rebuild them as a team. Right. You know, there is that sort of, I think there's a certain amount of truth to the fact that Americans are pretty individualistic as people. Um and so, you know, this is why you cut their hair so it all looks the same. This is why you put them all in the same uniform. This is why you teach them all how to, how to make a bed, a bunk, the same exact way. Mm-hmm. How to you know, wear it exactly. You wear your uniform exactly the same way, which really rankled a lot of these, you know, draftees having to do this stuff. But it also made them look as similar as possible, and in ways they didn't want to look. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is a much shorter haircut than what they preferred. Sort of interestingly, because you look at World War II haircuts and they're pretty long compared to what we do now for the military. But the uh, but they did, you know, this was much more uniform. So they get sort of tore down. And one of the things that you know, I talk about and in, in, in the book is is the uh, and I talk about it because the soldiers noticed it, because the troops noticed it, this sort of idea of having to go and, and join the military, and you get into basic training and you get stripped down completely. And literally, you know, take off all of your clothes. You're all going to go in here and get a, a medical inspection. You're going to be in a line. Mm-hmm. This is not going to be private. You're going to be lined up, and we're going to uh, check out, check you out, your entire body, physical, to see if you have any, you know, problem that will keep you from being able to do your job. Often getting one of those problems would be venereal disease. So mm-hmm. some of these checkups were very intimate. Uh, you know, the sort of infamous uh, short-arm inspection, as yeah. they called it. Right, yeah. uh, and then you're going to go and get into very you know, common showers, common latrines. Uh, so you have you know, guys lined up. You know, sort of you think about sort of the individual act of uh, of going to the bathroom, and you're doing it in full view of all of these individuals you know, who who are strangers at, at first, and it just becomes this. Yeah, you know, and, and the importance of this is you know sort of extreme in some ways. Which is that it, you know, it, it can show that 
for the for the folks who are really ignorant of different groups, and you see this sort of coming up, they they, they discover firsthand that Jews don't have horns or tails, <laughs> which is sort of one of these kind of myths that was out there mm-hmm. and repeated. And if you don't know any better, you know, what do you know about sort of issues like this? Um, but it also has the other effect of sort of stripping you of your pride <laughs> in in everything. Mm-hmm. And then the army goes about rebuilding you so that you're rather than sort of identifying you, 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 have, you mentioned earlier identity rather than identifying yourself as the Jewish kid from New York or the Italian kid from the south side of Chicago or the you know, whatever the Baptist from Kentucky or whatever your sort of group you start to identify yourself instead as a member of you know, first platoon a Bravo company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in your battalion, in your regiment, and in your division, and then you know, so on and so forth, or as a member, or as a soldier in the U.S. Army, and you start to build an identity around, around, you know, whether you're an artilleryman or an infantryman or airborne mm-hmm. or a soldier, as opposed to having an identity that's built around the, uh, ethnic or religious background. Right. So, right. you know, as a member of, you know, we can use the, the good, the easy company in the 101st there that, that is famous in the Band of Brothers. You know, it's a good little case study of an example of guys who are from a wide variety of backgrounds. But they identify themselves as members of easy company, not as members, you know, not as he was the Italian kid in, who happened to be an easy company. Now, he's right. the guy in easy company who happens to be Italian. So it's kind of a reversal or at least a, a downplay of, you know, I guess some of the Hollywood conventions that we've come to accept, you know, as as fact in some ways of the army as this melting pot of democracy. You know, you think of film portrayals that have the the kid from Brooklyn alongside the the slow talking southerner alongside the the Chicago kid and all that. I mean, that, that's still there, but it's not as emphatic or as well it, as it, it's absolutely there but it's 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 not what's sort of it, it becomes very clear that that's not that part of their identity is not what's most important right it is important right. but not what's most important uh what's most important is what they have in common which mm-hmm. is a lesson that i think is is much more driven home um and so uh, you know we could stop at, at training there if we wanted to uh, but I don't think that, mm-hmm. that quite drives the lesson quite home as much as as going overseas mm-hmm. and 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 then you know being in combat, which I deal with as separate issues. Right, um, right. Which I, I thought was pretty important because you know you can sort of very easily. I think most people can very easily understand in you know that that how little a guy in combat was concerned about whether the guy next to him who was covering his back as they were being shot at was Italian or whatever. But it's a little bit less easy to see that, you know, because the majority of the guys didn't see direct right. combat. And so I wanted to sh- sort of show how important it was to those guys, too, that, they, that in going overseas, one of the things that they really started to see, you know, as you draw your identity circle a little bit bigger, you know, it goes from that, you know, you get stripped down to your to your basics and then rebuilt as your platoon and your company and your battalion and your regiment and your division and your branch if you were in infantry mm-hmm. or, and then your you know your service branch is army or air force or marines as it were navy that you also you know begin to go overseas and this is pretty important i think too because 
you know, one of the things that happens with immigrants is uh, oftentimes they have sort of a romantic view of what they left behind that they've had right. their kids. And you really see this with Italians in World War II, the sort of view that they're going to head over, head back to, you know, that their dad had told them that, that you know, Naples was beautiful in uh, good old days. <laughs> and they go back to it and they discover that this is not, you know, that they might come from this, but this is not them anymore. Right. They have a lot more in common with the guy next to them as an American than they do with this, you know, and, you know, and obviously when it comes to war, you're heading into a war zone, so these, these are people not at their best either. You know, so <laughs> they see they see people around the world, you know, not at their best, and they see them as something that they really don't want to be. I mean, right. And, and in fact, it's actually sort of an interesting thing when it comes to uh, is a great sort of cultural artifact of, of World War II service that you don't see a lot of vacationing uh, among the World War II generation with going overseas until much, much later. Right. But they really have very little interest in vacationing back to other parts of the world. They're very interested when they come back with seeing the rest of the United States and seeing where all their buddies had come from. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and seeing, you know, I wonder what California is like at the Grand Canyon or, or, you know, go back to these other places that they had gone, you know, that they've heard about or gone to briefly during the war. They want to go back to those. They have, I mean, you know, my grandfather, for example, was in the Navy and he had, you know, and, and had gone to the Pacific and had gone to Hawaii and, and you know, the Philippines and Bougainville and these places. He had no interest in going back to the Pacific right. as a vacation. Right. He's like, I'd seen that plenty for me, you know. Again, didn't see it at its best, you know, saw it during a war you know, and, and all of the bad things that went along with that. Had no interest in going back. But, you know, you see this huge increase in vacationing after World War II, and it's, but it's, it's very much within the United States. Mm-hmm. So I think to talk about is sort of the way that those guys, they come back and they, you know, the, the you know, national park visits take off. Right. Well, here, here, is, here as well, too, is where, I guess, you know, tolerance you know, and then the growth and rise of tolerance features in because you have people who are not only, you know, able now to travel across the United States with their leisure time, but they're not afraid of going to other places yeah, where absolutely. they might not have been felt comfortable going before. Right. I mean, it's one of the things, it's amazing for what's not there. Like you say, you, mm-hmm. you don't see this sort of fear. Oh, if I go to this city with its reputation for how it treats X group, I might be in danger. Mm-hmm. No, they don't even think about that. <clears throat> they just think about seeing that other part of America that they know something about, either because they passed through it during the war on their way to all points uh, to fight mm-hmm. to, to different theaters, or they just had friends who had told them. You know, and oftentimes, and now, I mean, I don't, I, I, this is unclear how often they went and saw buddies from other places. That, that is not really in the record, mm-hmm. clear from what I could find. Uh, it would be an interesting thing to try and research how much sort of, you know, catching up they did after the war. Did they go back and try to, did they stay in contact and go see? Now, they assumed they would. Mm-hmm. You see some of that. I can I can point to some of that in, in the war where you see guys saying, you know, after the war, I'm going to go visit so-and-so in California, Nevada. I'm going to go to Texas and and see that. I don't know how often they followed through on that, but we do know that they did travel a lot. Right. And, and you're right. The, the, the tolerant, you know, the, the idea that you could and there was no real concern for your safety is a, big deal uh, that is a that is a, a huge it, you know, it's, it's interesting for what's not there it's sort of like very similar i think to the suburb issue mm-hmm. which is one of my favorite things to, to 
to really point out about the post-war suburbs. And I love, I love the post-war suburb, the, the, the popular image we have of, of the post-war suburbs because they've got this, and we've got this image of them as being these very conformist cookie cutter, you know, the one I always like is the yep. Edward Scissorhands view, yep. you know, where everybody pulls out of the driveway at the same time in the same exact cars and drives down the road. But yeah. Every- Levittown, Pennsylvania, for example. Right. right. Yeah. All of the, Levitt- yeah, and it, all of those, those post-war suburbs that look that way. And then, you know, go look at the names on the mailboxes though. You know, and you'll have a Horowitz next to a, you know, a, a Rockinelli next to a, uh, a Murphy <laughs> across the street from a Schmidt. And, you, you know, you go through these, you know, next to a Miller across from a Davis. And, and, you, and you think about the idea that just a few years earlier to call, to call that conformist and all the same in cookie cutter would have, would have blown people's minds. Did you say that in 1935? That oh look all these people in this place are all the same, mm-hmm. and then and they would have thought you were crazy. It wouldn't have even happened. You know that all the Rockinellis lived in there. You know lived next to the to the Bersinos in the in their own little neighborhood in the tenement yeah. section, right? Right, and so it, it's it, I, you know it tells you how fast the change happens. That almost immediately after the war, we get this view of this sort of the 1930s stultifying, boring conformist view of these suburbs and all these people are the same and they're all in their bowling leagues together and aren't they, <laughs> you know, shouldn't, shouldn't they be a little bit, you know, should, you know, won't they allow some sort of diversity? You know, whoa, hold on. This is extremely diverse for what was 10, 10 years earlier. And, that's but that's how fast it happened. And, and, you know, the reason is because it's just, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't see the, the fear or the concern. It's not, nobody's really worried about the idea of having these people living by you. Yeah, there's really no tension associated with it yeah, by, by this point. Right. Yeah. Right. That's, that's reserved for, again, unfortunately, African Americans or others who move into the neighborhood. Right. And Tom, we're, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. I'm sorry. I cut you no, off. I, well, that, that was going to be, you know, that is sort of, it is the elephant in the room in this discussion. And I, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it, it is the exception in the, in the book. And I, and I, I do try to, to, uh, you know, maybe not enough of a degree, but I really do try to point out, you know, at every turn that African Americans are excluded from all of this. And that is an extremely important because, you know, one of the, almost the heartbreaking thing about this is that as I became stronger in my argument about, about the idea that World War II service is at the center of this growing growing tolerance, that it's really the key event, as opposed to all the other factors that might have helped support it, that every time it grew stronger, every time I realized just how bad relations were among the among these ethnic and religious groups, white ethnic and religious groups prior to and through the war, and then how quickly they got better, it just made it all the more heartbreaking that African Americans were excluded from it. Mm-hmm. Because if it could work for people who were so divided you know, ethnically and religiously, what could it have done for people who were divided racially? And, you know, I'm not, I don't think, you know, I don't think it solves all the problems with race in America, obviously not, right? But all indications are that it would have helped enormously because on mm-hmm. the few examples when they were mixed together, you know, when, it, you know, when you get to the Battle of the Bulge and there's personnel shortages and we all but integrate some of the frontline forces mm-hmm. in order to get black troops into directly into combat 
to, to help fill in those needs and the white troops fight alongside them. We actually do have some pretty good survey data on those guys, white and black, and they talk about higher degrees of tolerance towards African Americans. They sort of, they show a newfound respect, much higher degrees mm-hmm. than the folks who never saw African Americans or only saw them as something separate in the war. And, and, you know, so you get this, you know, very clear, you know, uh, you know, missed opportunity that happens with, with with World War II. That you know, had they had they made that dramatic step of integrating the military prior to mm-hmm. rather than after the war, mm-hmm. and all of these same things of stripping down them down to their individuality, you know, sort of showing the the sort of the foolishness of of the superficial differences that were overemphasized prior to service, and then rebuilding them together as as you know, as units, as servicemen, as infantrymen, as Americans when they went overseas and then in combat, and, and sort of showing the sacrifice of those who died. That you know, what could have happened mm. to African Americans? You know, could we have you know kickstarted all of these? You know, the, the the much more painful civil rights movement a little bit earlier and you know, got it going a little bit faster. Right. And, and what 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 could have happened? So yeah, that that is the. Uh, it, it was sort of the, the lost, the really the lost opportunity of, of World War II that becomes much more apparent when you put it up against what did actually happen. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that uh, something that, that can be explored even more, I think. Yeah, well, sadly, sadly, perhaps some change must be incremental, whether we want to believe it or not. Right. Uh, Tom, we're almost out of time, and I'm going to ask you our customary last question. What's next? Where do you go from here? Okay, well, uh, right now what I'm working on um, uh, is a biography of a, of a guy named Frederick Funston, uh, who was a uh, U.S. Army general uh, in the uh, who uh, emerged out of the uh, the, the Spanish-American War, Philippine mm-hmm. War, the Philippine Insurrection, uh, sometimes called um, used to be called a Funston. It's sort of, it's sort of a different uh, subject. It's uh, when I say it's a biography, it's much more of sort of a life and times. Of Frederick Funston because he's a very interesting character, uh, very representative of sort of the the, the changes that happened uh, in the United States sort of after, between the Civil War and World War One. Mm-hmm. He's sort of in the you know he's born right at the end of, of the Civil War, uh, sort of lived you know, he uh, moves with his his family to Kansas from Ohio. He's born in Ohio, moves with his family to Kansas, uh, grows up and and sort of gets this. He lives a very a life sort of similar to. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, only you know, not not sort of coming from the same background of wealth, but more of a kind of a middle class type life. You know, starts you know grows up as a, as a farm kid. Goes, uh, dad was actually ended up being a congressman mm-hmm. uh, from Kansas for a while. Uh, goes on sort of a series of of really adventures that are almost uh, unbelievable if they weren't true. And he goes off and uh, explores Death Valley uh, with sort of for the for the um, the U.S. government as part of an expedition to Death Valley does a couple of expeditions to Alaska uh, to, to help. You know, it goes down, you know, can basically kayak canoes or kayaks down the Yukon River, uh, <laughs> does some exploring in what, what is now Anwar and actually named a river in what is now Anwar, oh uh, my. Uh, which is sort of interesting as that kind of exploring had sort of run its course, uh, continues to look for adventure, ends up joining uh, doesn't get the fame he sort of expects, or the the out of the exploring life, and so sort of ends up joining uh, the Cuban Revolution against Spain, 
American bike <laughs> is a, a filibuster basically and, and against the against the Spanish prior to the to the outbreak of the Spanish American War. Uh, and based on his fighting there, their young man gets command of the volunteer regiment, the Kansas, the 20th Kansas Volunteer Regiment that goes to the Philippines, where he won a Medal of Honor uh, for his actions in fighting the conventional part of the war in the Philippines, crossing a river for a river crossing, and based on the strength of that, becomes a Brigadier General in the U.S. Yeah. Volunteers. And based on being a, and as a general in the U.S. Volunteers, he leads this uh, really pretty much insane plan to capture the insurgent leader, Emilio Aguinaldo, where he poses as a prisoner being taken to <laughs> Aguinaldo's camp and then takes Aguinaldo prisoner, uh, which is, which is, be, I mean, which really is no exaggeration to say would be almost the equivalent of, of having a guy do the same thing, sneaking into Osama bin Laden's <laughs> camp and taking him back in prison and then getting Aguinaldo to sign a, a surrender and get out of the fight. And based on this, he becomes a regular general in, in the United States Army. In the regular United States Army, uh, which is the lowest rank he ever serves in the U.S. Army, the regular Army is Brigadier <laughs> General, which doesn't happen these days. No. Uh, and yeah, and then sort of proceeds to be kind of sort of you know Forrest Gump his way around into all of these major <laughs> events. He happens to be the Army officer who's in charge on the day of the earthquake in San Francisco in 1906, and becomes sort of caught up in, in the issues there and. Uh, ends up commanding the American force in the occupation of Veracruz when Woodrow Wilson decided <laughs> to get involved in Mexico and was uh, John Pershing's boss when Pershing did the punitive expedition searching for right. India. So funds his command of the entire southern border uh, and ends up having 120,000, 130,000 men under his command on the border and really probably would have been the commander of the American Expeditionary Force in World War One had he not died of a heart attack right before the United States entered the war. <laughs> <laughs> He's a fascinating character who represents all of the sort of you know, all of these major trends of, of progressivism and populism and oh yeah and uh, imperialism, uh, some of the racial issues that go on. It's just a He's just all over the place and, and, and very, very interesting uh, character. So that's that's what I'm working on is, is Frederick Funston, a guy who is largely forgotten and you know, probably shouldn't be. That's fantastic. It's, it's going to be a ripping yarn, I tell you. Yeah, uh. I'm, I'm hoping. I, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping I can mostly just stay out of the way of the adventure part of it, and and then sort of talk about how he how he really relates to these bigger issues. Because sure, you know, that's that's sort of one of the things we really try to do as a historian who's writing a biography it's, rather than a biographer. Right, that's what we do. And of course, you know, him coming up and being really like one of the last of those freebooting type of volunteer officers to rise to high rank in the regular army. At this stage in the in the, in the history of the army is is fascinating. Yeah, he's, uh, he's definitely an interesting character, and uh, it's hard hard to beat the sort of story of his of his life and all that he gets involved in. So, well, we're going to look forward to talking about that when it comes out, Tom. Well, I, it's been <laughs> great. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, I really enjoyed this today, and uh, good luck and everything. I appreciate it, and uh, um, thanks for what you guys are doing with these. Uh, this new book thing, this is, uh, this, is, this is great. Oh, that's great. Tom, take care. Thanks a lot. Yeah, you Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Thomas Pacino about his new book, A Nation Forged in War, How World War II Taught Americans to Get Along. This is Bob Wintermute for New Books in History. Thank you for listening.